at the time, it was very common for activists to be picked up from their homes, locked away in uh, unknown uh, prison cells, and in some instances, they were never to be seen. Silas Siakor has dedicated his life to fighting for the disempowered in Liberia, a country where corruption and land grabs have led to a massive gap between the haves and have-nots. In recent years, the government has awarded hundreds of logging, agriculture, oil and mining contracts on land owned under customary law by rural Liberians. And those who have stood up against this have faced intimidation, causing many to go into hiding or even flee the country. This is Defenders of the Earth, a podcast by Global Witness. I am Vanessa Nakate, and in this episode, we champion the work of those who are standing up for Liberia's environment. Liberia, the first African republic to proclaim its independence, has had a turbulent history and has been permanently scarred by brutal dictatorship and civil wars. Today, it's the nation's landscape that is under threat. Liberia is known for its lush, beautiful rolling forests covering around 45% of the country. But between 1990 and 2010, Liberia lost over 12% of its forest cover. This has left the country even more vulnerable to climate change and extreme weather events while at the same time, homes and livelihoods are being destroyed by extensive logging and palm oil production. And although there are laws meant to curtail these practices, these forests continue to be hijacked by big business. Silas Siakor has dedicated his life to trying to protect this environment. I grew up uh, in the countryside, and we have very limited access to basic social services, education, healthcare, roads, electricity, running water. And as a result, people like me grew up hating the system that actually gave rise to such level of deprivation. For example, during my time uh, as, as a young person, it was very common to go to bed uh, very hungry, uh, that you didn't have enough food on the table. Um, so when you grow up in that situation, it's a natural instinct to ask questions about why things are the way they are, especially when you see others are relatively well off. It is natural for you to develop a, a kind of resentment against those who benefit from that system, uh, who have a better uh, living standard than you and your family will have. And so there was that obvious divide between the haves and the have-nots. And, and the haves happen to be the politicians, the families of, of politicians and business elites, and the have-not were uh, basically the rest of the population. So that was the context in which I grew up in, and I think it became a natural uh, calling for me to start to ask questions at a very early stage uh, and to begin to question why the situation was the way it was. More and more across West Africa, we're seeing that there are a series of investments or developments that are very land and natural resource hungry. 
Jonathan Kaufman is a human rights lawyer and is the executive director of Advocates for Community Alternatives, a non-profit organization that helps threatened West African communities fight back against businesses moving in to exploit the area's natural resources. He's seen firsthand what's happening. So much of this region has over time faced civil war and has been inaccessible in different ways. But now we're getting to a point in history where the companies and powerful governments are ready to go to places where they weren't before to get the bauxite, to get the gold, to get the rosewood, to grow the rubber or the palm oil. We're seeing destruction of forests, we're seeing pollution of waterways and other sensitive ecological resources. In Liberia, as elsewhere, land that's useful and productive is used, it is needed. Um, even if it's not in production right now, it may be a clan's reserve land that they are planning to use for expansion when their population expands or to rotate onto when they need to give the current land a rest. Um, so land that looks like bush to outsiders is very often very clearly planned for. So we're seeing, for example, rubber plantations and palm oil plantations expand into land that communities either occupy, use, or are planning to use and need for future generations. In Liberia, maybe more so than in a lot of other countries in West Africa, we're seeing these agro, these big ag plantations of, of a, particularly rubber and oil palm. Um, as something that has the potential to displace huge numbers of people and really affect their livelihoods. Mining is also um, very much a reality in Liberia. There's uh, mining for iron ore, there's gold, to a lesser extent there's diamonds, and mining projects often come with what you would expect. A lot of issues involving pollution, also loss of land, distortion of local economies so that people can no longer, uh, who, people who no longer have the land that they would have produced their own food on also can't buy it anymore because of inflation and, and the changes in the way that economic patterns are happening. Um, and when communities organize to either oppose those impacts or stand up for themselves, we're seeing situations where the companies team up with state actors to intimidate, repress, arrest, or sometimes commit physical violence against community defenders. In recent history, Liberia has been through two civil wars, the first between 1989 and 1997, and the second between 1999 and 2003. In total, it is estimated that 250,000 people died in the conflicts. And Silas Yakor says the wars themselves were linked to illegal deforestation and the stealing of land by big corporations. The link between our forests or natural resources in general and the conflict that uh, engulfed uh, Liberia for the better part of uh, 15 years uh, occurs at two levels. So the natural resources uh, to begin with are managed basically by the uh, politicians who are in leadership. And the way our legal framework was structured back then uh, in the 80s and before that was that the state uh, literally managed the natural resources on behalf of the population. So, And because uh, the system was set up in such a way that it excluded uh, the vast majority of the population, 
the population did not benefit from the resources, that was actually a part of the trigger that led to the conflict uh, in 1990. And then the second level takes place during the war itself, during the conflict, when different warring factions turn to natural resources to exploit and trade in those resources to be able to fund the militias, their uh, war efforts. So it actually uh, was a route to the conflict itself and also became a driver uh, for the conflict going forward. At great personal risk, Silas, along with other activists, collected evidence of falsified logging records, illegal logging practices, and associated human rights abuses. When I started uh, first investigating and writing stories about these issues, about the timber exploitation, the deprivation of the communities, I started that off as basic, uh, very short uh, articles, putting them out in the newsletter. And so we decided, a small group of young people, to set up uh, an organization to use this as a channel to get that information out. So we started off first as the uh, Save My Future Foundation back in uh, 1998. Um, And then fast forward to 2000, we had done very extensive research and uh, needed to find a way to publish that in uh, in 2001. But after uh, a year, and of course that was a, a, a very strategic decision to make, because immediately that report got released, we got very uh, strong uh, a pushback from the state. The Liberian Senate made a point of uh, convening a special extraordinary session to investigate those behind the report um, and to try to find a way to intimidate uh, all of us that were involved with the publication. So that turned out to be very strategic because we were able to use uh, that platform to uh, talk about it without necessarily bringing the Save My Future Foundation into the fray. Silas knew that publishing the report was risky, but he still took the decision to put himself in the firing line. As a compromise, I opted that as the lead researcher and the head for the organization, I would take personal responsibility by signing off on the report, um, so basically putting my name to it, so that if there were any uh, fall, uh, fallout from it, I would uh, be a, a buffer between uh, the organization, my colleagues, and, and the state. Um, so when we published the report and distributed copies in the legislature, uh, as we had anticipated, their immediate reaction was to try to haul me in uh, for a hearing, um, under the guise of conducting a hearing, but basically to find excuses uh, to lock me up. Because that's how, that was their modus operandi, uh, what we're saying with other uh, activists. So you get called in, you get questioned, you are uh, accused of, of uh, uh, contempt of the legislature or some kind of trump up charges, and you end up in prison, and from one thing to another, uh, you are either not heard from again, or uh, you you spend a very long time in prison. As a result, Silas feared for his life and fled the country, but after the end of the civil war and Charles Taylor's rule, he came home. And for his work in exposing his state-sponsored illegal activity, he was awarded the Goldman Environmental Prize in 2006. In his acceptance speech, he made a point of thanking all those 
who had campaigned at his side. As I moved towards the podium, it dawned on me that a moment of reckoning had arrived for me. The challenges that go with stepping forward, coming out of the shadows to accept this prize, had appeared insurmountable for so long. But now I realized that the many allies who worked with me over the years at the international level, and more importantly, at the community level, people who took far greater risks than I are at this moment stepping out into the spotlight to accept the challenge to carry out this struggle. Since President Taylor was ousted in 2003, Siakor has been working with Liberia's new leadership to create sustainable timber policies and give the local forest communities a voice through the first Forest People's Congress. But the situation today is still perilous and many voices are going unheard. Jonathan Kaufman. Many parts of Liberia are quite remote, difficult uh, to reach by car for outsiders. Uh, and so it's difficult often for communities to form alliances with outside groups. And so what we're seeing is a lot of very homegrown activism. Um, for example, in an area where I work and where ACA works that's affected by uh, the Salala rubber plantation, um, we've seen communities band together and form their own what they call a National Human Rights Congress. But it's actually a very local group of people who just see the problems in their communities. They're um, dedicated to documenting them, raising attention in the national capital. Um, and uh, our key partner in Liberia, Green Advocates International, which started as a, essentially a public interest environmental law shop, and evolved into um, an important umbrella group for raising the voices of communities that are trying to protect their land and natural environment. I knew what I was getting into. I mean, let's face it, um, I'm not afraid, right? I know myself, I'm, I'm not afraid at all. Alfred Brownell is a Liberian environmental activist and lawyer and the founder of Green Advocates International. There were protests and contestations and conflict because communities were complaining that their land and resources and the forests, you know, were being taken away and granted and they were not being consulted. And so complaints were coming to us. And so we had to respond to the threat. So quickly we mobilized the communities. We brought them to the, to the city to complain what was going on to get the government to stop it, and no one was responding. And so we took action to stop it. We filed legal actions to stop the clearing of the forest. And then everything changed, because the pressure started off now. The government knew that the company wouldn't have proceeded to clear cut. The company was worried that it wouldn't achieve the results. And then attempt to arrest communities, intimidate them, harass them, even us, you know, myself was being threatened as well. But then we stood our ground, right? So as we were doing that, we slowed down Sam Dabi. Another company, um, the second largest in the world, um, Golden Agric, subsidiary called Golden Verodium, got another contract from the government to start in the southeastern part of Liberia. And when the communities in the southeastern part of Liberia found out that we had slowed down Sam Dabi in the northwestern part, 
they asked us to intervene again. You can't even describe the destructions because the southeastern part of Liberia is in the heart of Liberia's pristine tropical forest. That is the area where, in fact, in Sino, we have the nation's premier national park called the Sapa National Park. When I arrived in, in, in Buto that day, and the folks took me around, showed me, I mean, you could see, I mean, the timber, I mean, just in terms of the economic waste, just the amount of timber that this company had cut down. And they would dig the hole and try to bury it. It was just unbelievable. And then the threats, you know, there were threats against the communities, uh, against the dealers, you know, trying to to force them to give up the land they didn't want to. So again, we made representation, we filed a complaint. Now we have two complaints now, one against Sam Dabi, one against Gordon Verurium. You're talking about billions of dollars of investment that the government was trying to attract in oil palm. And so when they couldn't succeed now, uh, they started deploying the police. So people were, were get arrested in Sino and they were put in prison. And I myself was being threatened. And so the threat got beyond what we expected. I almost lost my life. Did a fact finding. I think it was in June of 2014. My vehicle got surrounded by, you know, militias of the company and security guys and employees. They had machetes, they had guns. And they tried to kill me. And they tried to kill my 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 my, my staff members. We were surrounded by these men and it was almost four hours sitting down, you know, trying to punch up my tire, break into the window glasses and everything. It was terrible. And after that, it was one threat after the other threat. It was difficult for us to even go represent them because I was being threatened they tried to indict me for inciting the communities and everything. I was being followed, surveillance, my phone, my emails, my colleagues were all being tracked back and forth. This all led to Alfred and his family fleeing the country in 2016, first to Ghana and eventually to the United States, where he lives now today, still in temporary exile. He continues to work to help Liberians and other West African communities victimized by resource exploitation. Like Silas Siakor, he has been internationally recognized for his work, being awarded a Goldman Prize in 2019. <laughs> Yes, I survived to tell this story. But many defenders around the world who are part of our community murder at the rate of four per week have not been so lucky. This victory was possible only because we built an army of local and international NGOs. What happened to Alfred was extraordinary because it takes a lot for a government to go after someone who is nationally prominent and attention is paid. 
but it's a, it, it is relatively easy for repressive forces to go after local community defenders who um, don't have a broad network and who it's not easy for information to get out. And the waters are always muddied by community factionalism or by charges against them that they've somehow broken a law against unauthorized protest or something like that. Um, so Alfred's work to bring to light what is happening at the community level and put tools in the hands of community defenders so that they can organize, network, communicate, and find alliances is, I think, absolutely the number one priority for anyone who's serious about community protection in West Africa. Climate change is only exacerbating the problems those in Liberia are facing, and Alfred believes if the illegal logging and palm oil production continue, then the situation will get even worse, and the divisions wider. We're facing the climate crisis. Who is at the front line? Who's at the front line? These defenders. Every single day they've been defacing reprisals and attack. And what is the rest of the world doing? Nothing to protect them. So it's time for the world to speak up. But for those still standing up against those trying to take their land from them, the fight is far from over. And the intimidation and threats remain very real. As Saila Siakor is only too aware. The way I would describe it would be uh, much more sensitive and careful about how you carry yourself. Um, so you are a bit more aware of your surroundings. Uh, when you move around, you are a bit more, you try to be a bit more aware about uh, uh, happiness around yourself. Uh, you don't allow yourself to become totally oblivious to what's happening around you. It's a war that Alfred Brownell is determined to keep fighting. I'm a soldier of the ice. I don't know how I'm going to stop fighting. I can't stop fighting. This has been Defenders of the Earth. It is a Whistle Down and Global Witness production.